You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Joining me in the studio is David Gordon. He's the education director of the Carmel Bach Festival. He he debut his operatic debut is was in 1973. He's been called one of the world's greatest Bach tenors. He's a prolific classical recording artist who appears on 15 CDs for RCA, Red Seal, Decca, London, Telarc, Dorian, Newport, and Vox. Thank you for joining me, David. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. It's great to be here. David, what really interests me about the Carmel Bach Festival is the fact that somebody like you plays such an interesting part in it. We think of music festivals as being solely about the notes coming from the instruments, yeah. but there's a lot more to the Bach Festival than notes coming from the instruments, isn't there? I think there always has been. Since the very beginning of the Carmel Bach Festival nearly 75 years ago, there's always been an interest in exploring the ideas and the culture around the music arts and ideas, music and ideas. And in the last 10 years or so, since I, I made a transition from being a performer to being a staff member at the Bach Festival about 10 years ago, um, I have really championed this idea of bringing lots and lots of events into the festival that surround the concerts and deepen people's connection to the music and uh, to the people who make the music. It's really interesting to me. Talk about this transition from a performer of music to being a performer of narration and kind of a, a, a teacher yeah. in many ways. Well, it's, I, I've been a performer all my life. I've been a musician all my life. It's the only work I've ever done is being a singer. And uh, I have a lot of wide-ranging interests within that idea of singing. I do bluegrass music and jazz and pop and all kinds of stuff. But I, I first, my association with the festival goes back to 1983 when I first sang there as tenor soloist. And I sang most seasons uh, through the 80s and the 90s. And toward the end of the 1990s, I was frankly getting bored. I had been on the road for 30 years. I sang all over the world. I was an opera singer, did lots of concert work and other stuff. I wanted more connection directly with people. And I felt a little remote in the rarefied world of the guy who enters by the stage door and after the performance leaves, go home, goes home to the hotel. And it's, you know, my life was basically room service and HBO for, for a couple of decades. And I wanted to be more involved with people. So I deliberately stepped off that treadmill when I was young enough to not have to. Mm. And it's one of the best decisions I ever made. I wound down my singing career and at the same time wound up a career of mentoring, teaching, lecturing, and generally being an educator, but not in a school. <laughs> I, I just love lighting people up about the music. I love lecturing about the music because I want to not tell people about the... Let's now listen in the second movement of this Haydn Symphony Number no. 48. You will hear in the oboes the inverted form of the primary theme in the development of the first movement. This is unusual, and it's a, it's a, it's typical only of Haydn's middle period. Which, and the thing is, that's not that's of intellectual interest, but it doesn't help you 
leave the lecture and go listen to the music. I'd rather talk about the problems that Haydn was going through when he wrote this piece, why he wrote it, what lit him up about it, why, did the, why does this piece need to exist, and why should we care that it exists? <laughs> and I want to get people drooling. I want to get people excited so they say, wow, this is so cool. I can't wait now to hear this piece of music that we've learned the background of. And that is central to my work at the Carmel Bach Festival, is trying to create this kind of excitement so that people can really own the music and don't ever, ever, ever have to feel that they don't know enough to appreciate it. <laughs> I, I really don't like that approach. Well, you know, what you're talking about is really interesting to me because when we look back at the world through history, when these different composers were writing, I mean... Their work is a reflection of that world yeah. and a reaction to that world. And what we find, I think, is that that world has a lot to do with our world. It gave yeah. birth to our world. But moreover, the people in there were going through the same things. I mean, there was a huge mm -hmm. anti-liberal backlash when <laughs> Beethoven was writing the yeah. Ninth. He was in the midst of times that are not unlike ours now. It's, it, th these different eras are like a mirror for us now. Um, we can always find parallels. And if we seek those parallels and look for a way to place ourselves in the continuum of the arts and humanity, we can connect ourselves more with this art that comes from hundreds of years ago in some, in some cases. And so what I seek to do is to build a bridge, a bridge from the 18th century to now, because the pri I mean, we do four centuries of music this summer at the Bach Festival. That's the cool thing. We do four centuries of music, 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th century, by 22 different composers. But there's no doubt that the central core of what we do is the period from Bach to Beethoven, say from the early 1700s to the early 1800s. That's, a, that's the majority of the stuff that we do at the festival. And there's lots and lots to learn from that time from the culture of the time, from how hard it was to live at that time. And I'm a history buff. I'm, I'm right now on a jag reading books about the history of domestic lighting. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> and it's unbelievably primitive until fairly recent. People were burning pieces of wood dipped in wax. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And then you think, well, Bach wrote all this music thousands of pieces of music the metal pen had not been invented yet the stove had not been invented yet so his wife was cooking meals for all the kids over an open hearth really? and Bach was writing his music with a goose quill pen and when you look at that it puts you more in connection with Bach the human being he wasn't a rich man he was a kind of a low level white collar kind of a guy and he he had a hard life and then you appreciate the struggle that these great composers had to go through before the world knew they were great <laughs> well let's talk about some of the yeah. stuff you're talking about mm -hmm. at at the the festival this year um let the anxious anxious conscience mm -hmm. you have spent 40 years exploring saint matthew's passion mm -hmm. it Explain to us why. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was, good Lord, it was, uh, it was 1970. Uh, so I, I, would have been, I would have been 22. I was 
going to school in Illinois, and I was hired by a little college in Missouri to sing this role in the St. Matthew Passion called the Evangelist. It's the narrator. The St. Matthew Passion is the story of Easter from two chapters of the book of Matthew. And um, Bach sets it to music and interpolates all sorts of chorales and hymns and, and beautiful arias and duets and choruses and stuff. It's this huge work. Two orchestras on stage at the same time. Two full choruses on stage at the same time, sometimes operating completely independently of each other. Six vocal soloists. It's a huge thing. Well, I discovered in 1970 that this was... It just felt like cream on my voice. My voice was perfect for this music, and it's kind of daunting. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard. And so I just started singing it because I really enjoyed it. I found the, the St. Matthew Passion is a work of great spiritual humanity. It's a work of, of great ethics and conscience, and it goes far beyond its Lutheran roots from the 1720s in Germany. It belongs to the whole world. And, um, and I found that people all over the world were, were moved by it. And how it's, how it, do you mean that, that, that it belongs to the whole world? That's an interesting well, way of... Well, it was written... The St. Matthew Passion, like most of Bach's vocal work, was written to be performed in a specific church service. Mm -hmm. It was performed six times during his lifetime. It was never published. None of his vocal music was published while he was alive. And it was very specifically written for a specific church on a specific Good Friday in the 1720s. And it's Lutheran. I mean, it comes from a Lutheran tradition, and it, many of the, many, much of the text is a translation of the Bible by Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. And so you could look at this and say, well, it's Lutheran church music. That has nothing to say to me. I'm, I personally am not a Lutheran at all. You could say, well, it's Lutheran church music. What does it have to say to me? Well, th the fact is that it's so deep, it's so profound, that it kind of goes beyond those mere, I'll say mere Lutheran roots, and speaks to all of us about conscience, about letting down a friend, uh, about ethics, about commitment, about hope. And you can receive all of this message without being a Lutheran. In fact, you can receive it without being a Christian. And that's what I mean, that it belongs to the whole world. It doesn't just belong to the Lutheran um, church tradition. It's the music. That, it's that the, the music. And yet... Even as we perform it as art music in a concert hall for ticketed audience, which Bach would be flabbergasted to see, even there, we still approach it with a knowledge of the theology from which it came because that actually helps us to make musical choices mm. for the drama of the piece. It's the closest thing to an opera that Bach ever wrote. And it's, it's rare to hear it these days because it's so huge and because when a symphony performs it, for example... Uh, you have to pay all kinds of extra performers, extra vocal soloists, and overtime because the piece itself is three hours long. <laughs> well, you know, it strikes me that the uh, your perfection for the role of narrator um, is something that the first seed that planted that landed you where you are today. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. Um, I, I started doing that in 1970 by... 1982, I was singing at the San Francisco Opera, and I heard about this Bach festival down here, and I, I loved Bach, and I thought, well, let me make a connection there. And I came down and auditioned, and that got me here in, in 83. And it, it 
Bach has taken me around the world uh, to places I never would have gone before, South America, Japan, all over Europe. And I've met a lot of wonderful people. And I've also had the opportunity to walk through this incredible landscape of Bach's music um, I, a couple of hundred times. And every time is different. You know, every time is different. It, one thing that interests me, when you talk about St. Matthew's Passion being such a huge uh, endeavor, even now, when Bach was writing this music and having it played, there they had no professional musicians' union, that did they? I, well, they had something like that. They had a... They had something called the Stadtpfeiffer in, in, in Leipzig, in the city mm -hmm. of Leipzig. Where you, it, was a, it was a kind of a union. But in order to join this union, you had to audition with violin, cello, flute, trumpet, oboe, and recorder. Now, the question is, how well did you play them all? You probably had one strong one, but you might be called to play the other one that you'd only learned a few chords on or something. Um, we have no idea how good the musicians were the instrumentalists or the singers who played Bach's music. We have no real idea. Um, they were, were all men, first of all. There was no women involved at all in Bach's music uh, in the church. And there were boys singing soprano and alto, men singing tenor and baritone, and probably some ragtag bunch of, of musicians pulled in to play this music. We have no idea what they sounded like. I think Bach would be utterly flabbergasted to see what we do today with his music and how we have how we've given it really to the whole world and through our radio waves to the universe really uh, talk about uh, creating textual um pieces that precede the performance that Im that involve you as a performer yeah. you i mean you are a yeah. guy who used to stand up there and sing mm -hmm. you know the 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 tenor yeah and so yes. so i You've got a, you have found something that involves no musical notes, but mm. is more compelling to you than the music. It is, actually. Um, I love these pre-concert conversations because I share what I get enthusiastic about. I don't want to lecture to people and make them feel that they don't know enough. I want to light them up with something that lights me up. I want to say, listen to this. I found this three days ago in a book. You won't believe this. And I'm going to add this to my speech. Um, the lectures are 25 to 30 minutes. And there's no musical sound examples or anything. It's me talking about the composer, the life, the times, the context, the need for the music, the difficulties in writing the music, so that people have a personal connection. You know, Igor Stravinsky very famously said, for God's sake, don't respect my music, just love it. <laughs> and I think especially with these old, you know, we jokingly say this Baroque music, it's old, it's music all written by old dead white guys. And there, it's a long time ago. I mean, it's ages ago. And if we respect it, we push it off at arm's length. And Bach becomes a marble bust on top of the piano teacher's piano. Bach was a real guy who had an amazing life. And if the people get a sense of that, then they can connect with him as a person.
and he's not just some god up in the sky. They connect with him as a person. So I talk about Bach and his struggles, Beethoven and his struggles. We're hearing a lot of Beethoven at the Karma Bach Festival this year, and uh, Brahms. And particularly, those three composers are very highly featured at the festival. And these are three fabulously interesting figures, and the more we know about them personally and away from the cliches, away from the myths and the cliches, what were they really like? Then the audience goes up and sits in the hall, and they sort of have a little glimpse of the person who wrote the music. And that's what I'm all about. Now, you work with the Carmel Bach Festival Academy. This is something that, that's uh, a bit different for mm-hmm. you. Uh, talk about uh, creating the next generation of both performers uh, and listeners yeah. of classical music. That's important. Well, I, I, am, I do not have children, and I, I am not an educator that, uh, who teaches kids in a classroom. And as a private voice teacher, I don't instruct uh, young people either. I love them, but I just don't work with them as a teacher. But I see the need for them to become involved in what we're doing at the festival. I see the festival's need for it. I see our community's need for it. So in 2003, the managing director of the festival and I set out to create a young musician's concert. We started it that year. In 2004, I just took my own initiative and started. We had a little need for a little group of teenage sopranos in 2004 to sing one specific melody in one concert. And the festival was going to hire some group, the San Francisco Girls Chorus or something. And I said, there's got to be people around here who can do that. And I auditioned a little group of 21 high school sopranos, and they sang this piece. They totally aced it. And we were lit up by the presence of the kids in mm-hmm. our midst. So we, in 2005, we created a real four-part soprano, alto, tenor, bass, youth chorus, nine, kids 19 and younger from Santa Cruz and Monterey County. And the same with our young musicians. And from from zero to 43 <laughs> we have in 2002 zero kids this year at the Carmel Bach Festival there will be 43 young people under the age of 19 involved in one way or another in eight of our major concerts including our candlelight mission concerts at the Carmel Mission and uh, five of our major concerts on stage in Sunset Center and they're they're part of the festival they have an there's, a, there's something at stake for them. They have a stake in it. They, they have ownership of a, of a relationship with the Bach Festival. Their pictures are in the program. And I want to light them up. I want to give them memories that they never forget. I want to give the kids more than they give us. I, wanna, I want them to leave with a richness of, of respect and meeting a challenge. And most of all, the thrill of being in a live concert. And I don't care where they go in their lives, I just want them to love live music. And not just live classical music, I want them to love live music. And that's, for me, it's about our, our Carmel Bach Festival creating the future. Well, one of the things that that does too is that creates a kind of a feedback loop because all yeah. those kids have families, they have you friends, bet. and they are going to be at that concert. You bet. And that's a lot of people who have a much more personal stake mm-hmm. in the music. And so that when you're on stage talking about the personal stake that the mm-hmm. composers had mm-hmm. and their lives sitting in mm-hmm. front of a hearth writing music mm-hmm. by waxed, <laughs> by wax flames, yeah. that, that's, yeah. that has some more meaning to us. Exactly. Who are, who exactly. are trying to, you know, use corkscrew light bulbs to save yeah. a few pennies. Right, <laughs> right. And so, so I, I guess I want to share this, this fun. I think one of the, 
one of the well-kept secrets of the Karma Bach Festival uh, comes from the fact that we are limited somewhat by our name. Uh, we are the Carmel Bach Festival, but as I said earlier, with 22 composers and four centuries of music this summer in 16 days, we are a lot more than Bach. And we are a lot more than just a classical music concert where you come and you have to remember when to applaud and when not to applaud and all of that stuff, um, which I find really tiresome, frankly. It's not the way concerts used to be in the olden days. Uh, I want people to know that the Carmel Bach Festival is fun. We have more free events than concerts. We have open rehearsals that I host, and the conductor wears a lapel microphone. You hear everything he says. They're actual working rehearsals. We have onstage instrument demonstrations. We have all these lectures and seminars and panel discussions with singers and audience Q&A. We have films. Um, there's a whole mix of stuff going on at the Karma Bach Festival. And it, and it, and it is all imbued, everything, including the most serious music that we do, with a sense of fun. That's the thing that brings this group together down there each summer. A hundred professional musicians from all over the world. Talk about um, uh, architecting this. You're, you're on the administrative side, so you're yes. making some of the choices, I would imagine, or, or putting some input into that. Oh, yeah. And you have such an interesting, I think, I, wouldn't, I would describe it not as, I guess, almost non-musical. Your, pers your entry point into this now is an idea of community involvement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, not necessarily uh, classical musical purity. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I don't, I don't think there is such a thing as classical musical purity. And I think we have to, classical musicians have to get down off that, um, that pedestal of superiority. Uh, this is music that was written for people. Every single piece we perform was written for people. And if we only respect it or if we... If we treat the music as somehow sacred in and of itself, we distance ourselves from it. Um, so I'm involved in every aspect of the festival. I'm, I consider myself the festival coyote. I'm the guy, I'm the guy <laughs> I who like says, that idea. I, I'm the guy who says, well, now, why are we doing this? Why do, why do we do this X here? Why, why is that? And somebody says, well, that's what we've always done. And I say, well, if I came to, if we'd never done this and I came to you now and said, let's do this, would you say that we should do it? Oh, you know, I, I love asking the why question. Mm -hmm. uh, I sit on the artistic team that plans the repertoire. Um, I, I create and narrate a full concert with our orchestra and to whole ensemble on every Tuesday night. Uh, we're, we're doing our sixth one this year. Uh, they're kind of, it's kind of a discovery concert. It's a narrated concert. And this year it's mm -hmm. all about Beethoven. Is uh, this the AHA concert? This is, this is the AHA concert, yes. Yeah, so tell us about that. That's yeah. a really great idea. I love that. Well... Bruno Weil, our music director, and I uh, dreamed this up uh, five, five years ago, I guess it was. And um, we did a concert with, of Mozart's music that was interwoven with quotations from his letters, mm -hmm. Mozart's own letters. And then we did Bach, and then we did a concerto, and then we did Haydn, and this year we're doing Beethoven. And I call this uh, the search for the heart of genius. And I, that means many things. It means search for the, some central element of his genius, search for the heart of a genius. Again, I wanted to get past the marble bust of that stern, imposing Beethoven that we all know and find some, the, the tenderness that musicians know is inside his music. So this whole concert will, be, will feature great music, excerpts from his opera, symphonic, chamber music, vocal, everything, 
interwoven with me narrating with excerpts from Beethoven's letters, excerpts from the conversation books he kept for the last decade of his life because that's how he communicated because he was deaf. And we know so much about him, including having recordings of actual conversations that he had because it's all written down. Wow, I never knew that. That's uh-huh. a, he would have had, of course. Yeah. What a and these books idea. still exist. These books still exist. And so you can find out things that he thought, things that he said in the middle of the day. There's so much there. And it's poignant and utterly heartbreaking when you get inside Beethoven and realize how sad and how lonely he was and how he put on this exterior to protect himself from being humiliated by his deafness. And when you go in there, you find a touching, different, tenderer place. And I'm all about that kind of exploration. I want to give people new lenses to see the old music. I want to give people new opportunities to connect with something that they maybe thought they knew. And the Carmel Bach Festival is a playground for me because it's a tradition of this and my work in this has been welcomed with open arms and I have a great team uh, of, of people there who, who are just wonderful to work with and love playing in this sandbox with me. Well, yeah. now I have to ask because you're so great extemporaneously mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. how much of this that you do is written down and scripted mm-hmm. and how much do you allow yourself to extemporize and live? The, the danger with an extemporaneous pre-concert talk is that I have to be finished at a certain time mm. and I have certain material that I want to cover. I don't exactly script it, but it's probably 80% scripted, mm-hmm. mainly because I'll just start talking and, and I'll get the, it'll be time to quit and I won't be done. <laughs> uh, but people always ask me, because I, I kind of perform my, my mm-hmm. lectures, I don't just read a script. I, I mean, I'm, I'm generally, I'm genuinely sharing something that I'm excited about and uh-huh. something's in my heart. And, and people say, well, have you written this down? I say, no, you can't write this down. You can't write the enthusiasm down. You can't write the little extraneous things that I might pull in. Um, I do, we do record them now, and I have recorded some of my lectures. If you go to my uh, website, which is spiritsound.com, S-P-I-R-I-T-S-O-U-N-D, spiritsound.com, I, I do have some of the Bach lectures on on CD, and we have lots of videos of these lectures on the festival website at bachfestival.org. And uh, they live in in the live <laughs> recording, but not <laughs> written down. So that's the answer to your question. I, 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 could ex- I could just do them extemporaneously, but you'd have to throw cold water on me and put a hook around my <laughs> neck to get me out of the hall, because I, I guess I enjoy my work too much. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the, the highlights of the of this year's Carmel Bach Festival that you're going to be working on and, and that, you know, you think will most involve mm-hmm. people who might not think they would want to mm-hmm. get involved. Well, I think our Tuesday night Beethoven concerts are great. They are a huge success. Um, they they invite the listener into the experience of, of, of a relationship with the composer. Um, I think that the Sunday afternoon... Uh, St. Matthew Passion 
for lovers of classical music, this is a fantastic way to be transported by this music. All of our foreign language choral music on the main stage is supertitled. It's all done in, we have projected English translations that I've created. And so you don't have to read along the translation. You can just sit there, look at the performers, enjoy the music, and get a gist of what it's all about. And it's a physical experience, too, when you have oh, that many people yeah. up there, that kind of power oh, of the music. It's, 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 like, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. The no recording, it's why I don't listen to so much classical music uh, recording, because <laughs> no recording can ever vibrate my body the way live music does. Our candlelight concert at the Mission on Wednesday nights will be absolutely extraordinary. A piece of music written 400 years ago this year in Florence by Claudio Monteverdi. It's considered in many ways the first great piece of modern music. Uh, it's a setting for orchestra, chorus, soloists. We do it in a candlelight processional in the Mission. It's a trip. Uh, it's one of our great fun things to do. And if you're a symphony lover... Friday night, the Beethoven Fifth Symphony, the ultimate symphony of destiny, one of Beethoven's great signature pieces. And so, you see, we've got all this stuff, and on, on Saturday night, uh, Bach cantatas and sandwiched between them, the barber, Samuel Barber Adagio for strings. Oh, it's such a beautiful you know, piece. You man. know, we, we try to pull all these different threads together that way. I've been speaking with David Gordon. He's the Education Director of the Carmel Bach Festival. Thank you for joining me, David. It's really nice to be here, Rick. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.